I want to talk for just a moment about a perception of, of God because how we understand God and how we see God often affects how we see ourselves and how we see Christianity. Um, I, I want you just to think about this. Do you, do you see God as a being that is so profoundly and profusely joyful that he just is in this constant state of joy? He's in a constant state of peace. He's in a constant state. In fact, part of his essence is he is love. He's in this constant state of love and hope and expectation. The, the God that we serve. I wonder if you think of him like that because a lot of people don't. Even a lot of Christians don't. Uh, we've been, I don't know if it's us preachers that taught poorly or what, but we'll, we'll see God as this aged, gray-haired man with a gray beard that is kind of... Uh, grumpy and, and ill-tempered and, and about the only time he gets a little glee is when he's releasing a flurry of judgment and punishment and, and uh, anger. And then, then we picture, oh, okay, God got a little happy there because he's you know, pouring out some wrath. A lot of people, even Christians, see God that way. And that wants to change the way we see God by how the Word reveals God. See, if you really want to know somebody, see, God's better at this than we are. If you, I would say if you really want to know somebody, ask them and talk to them. However, you know this, all of us want to present ourselves in our best light. God's not like that. God is not um, timid in his personality. He's not worried about, you know, God doesn't wake up this morning and say, I, I wonder if I'm pleasing Tracy. I wonder if I, I wonder if my, I wonder if I'm meeting a standard. He don't have any of that. He can tell you exactly how he is and he reveals it in scripture. That's one, one of the things I so believe in Christianity is, I am telling you, if I was going to invent a religion, I would not have the scoundrels that are filled up in, in my faith world. <laughs> when you read the Old Testament, you go, I think I would have changed David. I would have got rid of the David Bathsheba story. You know what I mean? I would have got rid, rid of Gideon's absolute unbelief. I would have got rid of all kinds of things. I would have got rid of lots of stuff. I was creating a religion. Uh, God just says, this is the way it is. This is who I am. This is the world. This is the people who follow me. This is it. It's just he lays it out there. And then also you can get to know somebody by hanging out with those who know that person really well. And so when we go through scripture, we have God revealing himself, and we also have people who love God and know him deeply revealing who he is. So when we look at that, I think of this, I think it's Psalm 16. I think we have a slide for that in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, this is David. David is writing. King David, you might remember him, uh, David and Goliath fame. King David is writing. He says, you make known to me the path of life. Now, it's not my topic today, but I want to at least lock this down a little bit. God does not want you groping through life trying to figure out what's, which way's up. That's not God's desire for you. He wants you to know the path. He wants you to know the way. And King David says that. He says, you have made known to me the path of life. All, all kind, the psalmist also says things like this. He says, when you're wondering which way to go, this is kind of my paraphrase, you're wondering, should I turn right or should I turn left? You'll hear a voice behind you saying, here is the way, walk in it. Hmm. There's another psalm that says this. This the Lord speaks. He said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. But the next verse says this. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Don't you like a verse that starts out like that? Don't be like the horse or the mule 
that has to be bitted and bridled and pulled and tugged to make it obey. But we should just have the submissive heart, say, God, God knows the way. God knows how to do life. He's guiding me with his eye. Let's have a submissive heart to obeying him. And remember Jesus? Jesus said, I am the, does anybody remember? I am the way. And so God doesn't want you to grope through life trying to figure out how to do life. So here the psalmist says, you've made known to me the path of life. And then he says this, he said, you will fill me with what? You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, if God was just uh, an ill-tempered, you know, crotchety old crank, then let me ask you this, would you find joy in his presence? No. Some of you sadly had parents or authority figures over you that were not well-adjusted, they were broken, they were hurting. And you found out in their presence was not the fullness of joy. In their presence, you had to walk on eggshells. In their presence, what made them laugh yesterday might get you a beating today. You just, you were, you were always ill at ease around them, and there was nothing but anxiety and angst and fear and worry, and, and uh, well, not so with God. In his presence, there's joy. In his presence, there's the fullness of joy, and at his right hand, there is how the King James says, at the right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So eternal pleasures in God. I want us to catch a picture of God and understand how he is. He's full of joy. Being in his presence is pleasurable. He wants to show you the path of life. He wants you to know how to do life. So we're going to talk today about how to have happiness and how to have a blessed life. So how to be happy, how to be blessed. That's our topic today. Now, when I talk on happiness, I usually always refer you to this article. I love this article. It's a real quick read. It is uh, done by a guy named Dennis Prager, if you like to read. It's just two or three pages. Dennis Prager, he writes this article so good. He wrote it several years ago, so, so good. It is called, a Happiness is a Moral Obligation. Now, it's an interesting thing, because we often in the Christian world say, oh, who cares about happiness? You know, what we need is joy. We do need joy, but happiness is closely connected to that. So happiness is a moral obligation by Dennis Prager, if you like to read things. I know it's two or three-page article and uh, well worth the read. And so how to be happy and how to be blessed. Well, when we start looking at the scriptures, we find that Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter 5. He's teaching this thing called the Beatitudes. We call it the Beatitudes. The Bible never used the word Beatitudes, but scholars said we're going to label this the Beatitudes which are teachings that bring about supreme and ultimate joy, supreme and ultimate happiness. And so Jesus is teaching these things, and they're called the Beatitudes. And he starts them out with blessed. And if you've ever read Matthew 5, it says, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, are those who seek after righteousness, blessed are the, pure, the meek, blessed are, there's all these blessed. Well, the King James, or the, uh, the Amplified Bible is a, a cool translation. By the way, there's lots of translation of the Bible, and I want to make this clear, because this is confusing a lot to, to new believers or people seeking truth. They think there's lots of different Bibles. There's not lots of different Bibles. There's Bibles that have different translations, meaning the translators chose different words to, to give the truth of that verse. You know, it may say, you may say, for God so loved the world that he gave. Another one may say, God loved the world so much that he gave. It'll, it'll basically say the same thing, but different ways of saying it. The Amplified Bible says there's certain words in the Bible that are so big it can't be contained with just a word. And so they'll take and amplify different words. So if you went to, I, I got this one, all the blessed, they end up amplifying. But in, in Matthew 5, 8, 
it says bless. It starts out the verse with bless, and then it stops right there and amplifies the word. Here it is. It's a big word. It means happy. So happy is a good translation. In fact, the guy who created the Living Bible, if you ever read the Living Bible, is a paraphrase created, I think, in the 60s or 70s. It starts all these out with happy are those, because happy is a good translation for that. Happy. Look at the next one. It's kind of cool. Enviably fortunate. Enviably fortunate. I had a guy who was in the computer business for years, and sometimes I would carry a new product line, and I would call up the people and say, hey, I want to carry this product line. They'd say, that's great. You know, just spend $10,000 with us getting one of all of it. And then my other buddy, he would want to carry a new product line. They'd say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you everything. We're going to fly you all over the United States to train you and to make contacts for you. And I said, hey, I got to tap into that favor of God there because he was enviably, he was enviably fortunate spiritually prosperous, possessing the happiness produced by the experience of God's favor. This is what that word blessed means. It's a big word. It's like, if, it's like trying to find the word shalom. It's a big word. And especially conditioned by the revelation, the knowledge, the insight of his grace, regardless of their outward circumstances. In other words, it's not just about the outward circumstances. This is something that bubbles up from the inside of you. So I want you to look at those things, and I want to ask this question. One, does this, is this your Christian experience? And if it's not, would you like this to be your Christian experience? Now, I hope the answer is yes to that. I can't think of anybody, go, oh, that sounds awful to me to be happy and fortunate and favored and, and prosperous and blessed in the Lord. Okay, I got it. It's like a weeble. You ever see, remember, remember the weebles? This drink, it wobbles, but I think it will fall down too. So I, I want us to see this image of God and get it burned into our hearts and minds as we look at this. And I want to look at, at an example in the Old Testament. Corinthians tells us that examples, real-life events that happen in the Old Testament are examples for us so we can learn what to do and what not to do. So we're going to look at Moses and the children of Israel. Now, the children of Israel, God rescued them from Egypt. And there's all kinds of parallels, so I want us to look at that. Go ahead and throw up these parallels. When we look at this story, Egypt represents, it's a story that we're going to get a spiritual truth from, Egypt represents the world, okay? It represents sin. It was pagan. It was not, they weren't worshiping the, the one true God. Pharaoh is a type of Satan or the devil. He wasn't Satan, but he's a type of it. Uh, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. By the way, it's interesting because when you say the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, the children of Israel, or Jews, or Jewish people, all those are describing the same people group. Are you with me there? And again, I'm not picking on that. This is my first time reading the Bible. I'd be thinking, how many are these people? They're, they're all the same people. It's talking about the Israelites, the Hebrews. And then Moses is a type of Jesus, and the Red Sea is a type of baptism. And the Exodus, I think I skipped that, Exodus is a type of salvation. Now, the word Exodus means a mass departure. In case you wondered what that meant, it's a mass departure. So there's a mass departure. The Hebrew people leaving Egypt by the mighty hand of God. 
And the Red Sea is like baptism. Now, just in case you say, I think you're stretching it there, I'm not, because that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. They were all baptized into Moses and into the sea. And so it's a type of baptism. So you've got this mighty, and boy, it could be a 10-part message talking about being delivered from Egypt, but you've got God's people. They're being oppressed. It's not the way it started out, but it got that way. They're being oppressed. They're in slavery. They are, they are brick makers, and they are under a... a a tough taskmaster who is, you know, under their whip, and it's a really hard time for the the Hebrews, and it's so hard, they're crying out to God, have been for decades, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us, and God raises up a deliverer. So they do, if you know the story, they do one day, God has dealt with all, there's 10 plagues that hit Egypt, every one of them dealt with one of the major gods of Egypt, there might have been more, but the 10 major gods of Egypt, and God crushes as we know he would, he crushes every one of those gods of Egypt that they were trusting in. And so he's shown victory. The one true God of the Hebrews, the Israelites, has shown victory over the gods of Egypt. And they are leaving Egypt. The exodus begins, they're leaving Egypt. Well, they leave Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army comes after them, they're killed in the sea, they are on the other side, and at that moment, they're in wonderful victory. Miriam grabs a tambourine, starts playing. They start seeing the horse and riders thrown into the sea, and it's a beautiful, wonderful celebration. But here's the tough part. It's one thing for you and me to get out of Egypt. It's another thing for Egypt to get out of us. And we have to deal with that. Now, you get Egypt out of you, I'm meaning the world and sin and all the things you've become so proficient in. And by the way, we can become very proficient in sinning, and it becomes kind of a part of who we are and even our identity. But we've got to get a new identity in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so the Hebrew people got to get Egypt out of them. Their journey to the promised land was supposed to be 40 days, about 40 days. But it doesn't take long till they're longing for Egypt. We look in Exodus 16, chapter 16, verse 3. The Israelites said to them, the them is Aaron and Moses, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. At least there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Sounds pretty American. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, is that the goal of bringing them out? Obviously not. What happens is it's usually our need that's drawing us at the moment that we most desperately want to get filled, and we'll go back to our old way of getting it filled. Here, God's working to get Egypt out of them. Now, because of their disobedience, instead of spending 40 days in the desert and moving into the promised land, they end up spending 40 years in the desert. 40 years. 40 long years. That whole generation has to die. The generation of unbelievers, of faithless people, have to die. So Egypt is out of the Hebrew people, and God's raising up a new generation of people who will go after him. So I want you to know that God's goal for you is for you to live, and I, I always feel need to say this because there is so much, maybe even not a whole lot, but there's enough that anytime you talk about being blessed or, or prosperous or God blessing you, oh my goodness, why, what's he going to get into? I'll tell you what I'm going to get into, the Bible. The Bible. God always has a 
a place he wants to take his people. And ultimately, I'm not saying we don't go through desert places. I'm not saying there's not people who love Jesus passionately that are in a, a, a prison cell for their confession of Christ. I get that. That's not who we are today. That may come to this place, and we have to learn just like we, what we learned earlier, how to have joy regardless of circumstances. But God's ultimate goal is not that we all end up in a prison for our faith, but he moves us into spacious places. My, my text for that is, is three places. One is the Garden of Eden. Was it a barely get by place? No, it was a place of abundance, a place of blessing, a place of more than enough. All the trees except one they could eat of, and all of them produced great fruit to look at and to eat, the Bible says. He's getting ready to move the children of Israel into the promised land. Is it a barely get by land? No. When we shed this earth suit, this physical body, we're going to be in heaven. How, how about heaven? Is it the projects? Is it barely get by? No. Streets are paved with gold. There's opulence beyond belief. God always wants to move his people into a place of prosperity. Now, my definition of prosperity has always been and always will be having more than enough so we can be a blessing to other people. So God wants to move you and I into a place of blessing. If you're here today and you feel like you're in barely get by land, which is exactly where they lived for 40 years, God was faithful to them. And for 40 years, I mean, I'm serious. They're eating manna for 40 years. I'm telling you, I would have a real hard time not complaining. 40 years. They had quail. They had manna. It, it would be hard. Their clothes never wore out. I want you to think about how many pairs of shoes do you have? Think about for 40 years you only had one pair. You know, some of you would be going, I couldn't take that. I mean, what about all these different outfits? You don't have to worry about different outfits. You got one outfit that don't wear out, one pair of shoes that don't wear out. You eat the same meal over and over and over. God's sustaining you. His presence is with you, but you're living in barely get by land. Believers, let's quit living in barely get by land and see where God wants to take us. So I want to look at Deuteronomy here because God is saying, here's where I want to take you to. So we'll take just a moment to look at this. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then you'll see this all throughout Deuteronomy. When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of what? Slavery. Out of the land of slavery. See, what happens is, is we romanticize the past and we forget the bad stuff, or sometimes the opposite happens too. But I had a great-grandmother. She was a godly woman, loved her, uh, incredible gal. She was born in the late 1800s, like 1897, somewhere around there. And she would tell me, my great-grandmother would tell me about how wonderful the olden days were. And she would talk about the farm, and she would talk about this, and she would talk about her family, and she would talk about her faith, and she would talk about all those things. Now, her daughter, my grandmother, one day told me, after hearing her tell me again how wonderful the olden days were, my grandmother looked at me and said, let me tell you something, Tracy. The only good thing about the good old days is that they're gone. And I thought, okay. Because we tend to romanticize it. 
Now let me tell you some things about living in the late 1800s, early 1900s. There was no running water. There were no bathrooms inside your home. There was no heat to kick on in the morning on a cold day. There was no, uh, no air conditioning to kick on. There was no transportation and cars and stuff like that. It was a hard life. Now, I'm happy that she remembered all the wonderful things, but that's what's happening with the Israelites. They're forgetting. We were under the lash of Pharaoh. We begged for deliverance forever. Right now, we're hungry, so now we want to complain about we don't have food. Back in Egypt, we had food, but here we don't have food. I had a couple sitting in my office one day, and they were telling me about it. Man, I think it was easier before we were Christians. I said, you had to be kidding me, because I'd heard their story. And so I started rehearsing their past. And I said, so you think, because you're in a hard spot right now as a believer, that it's worse than that? And after I rehearsed their stories for them, they said, no, it's not worse than that. So you've got to be careful, or the devil will have you romanticize the world in the past and not see all the blessing you have in God. So let's look at another set of verses about the promised land. Deuteronomy 8, For the Lord your God does bring you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, deep springs gushing out of the valley and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oils, and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack what? That's the only thing we want to lack, is nothing. You will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron, you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. This process of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, they're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, should have been about 40 days, and they get to the promised land. They're on the brink of it. Moses has died. Joshua is going to lead them in. They get to the promised land. They have to cross over. They have to cross over from the west side of the Jordan to the east side of the Jordan. Now, in this room, it would be like this. West side of the Jordan to the east side. In case you wonder, there's west, there's east. And they're supposed to cross over. So it's getting ready to happen. And actually, Moses isn't gone quite yet. They're getting ready to cross over. And there's two and one-half tribes that don't want to cross over. There's Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh that says, we don't want to cross over. We like this land right here on the west side or excuse me, the east side of the, the Jordan, because you've got to cross over to the west. I don't know how I said it earlier, but it's to the west. And we just want to stay here. Well, Moses got upset and said, you just don't want to go fight. They said, no, we're not afraid to fight. We'll go fight with you. We'll even lead the battles. But when we're done, we want to come back here to this side of the Jordan. Moses agreed. God agreed. But I can tell you, if you study it out, it wasn't God's premier plan. And so what ends up happening is we have Gad and Reuben and Manasseh. I think we have a slide of that that's too small for you to see, but let's throw that up. There's Reuben on the south with a big arrow, Gad and half-tribe Manasseh. They stay on, on this side, the east side of the Jordan. And they, do over, they go over and fight, but they're going to come back and settle this land. There's all kinds of problems with that, which I won't get into because they're not my message today. But I want you to see that I think Christians, we do that sometimes. We need to cross over. It wasn't that they weren't part of, of Israel. They were one of the 12 tribes, two and a half of them, in fact. But they don't cross over and stay over. they got to do all this fighting. they got to win all these battles. But they don't get to enjoy the land that flows with milk and honey. I want you and I to enjoy that land. Now, it, it's a spiritual thing that will show up in the natural but we should have more than enough. We should not be living and barely get by land. I've often said this, and it's really a poor way of saying it, so I'll develop it a little bit. 
I've said, there's a lot of people that are just saved enough to be miserable. They're just, well, you don't get kind of halfway saved. I'm not saying that. But they've given their lives to Christ, but they don't want to cross over. They don't really want to go. They say, I'm, I'm comfortable with where I am right here. This is the world I know, the system I know. But they don't like it either. And they need to break free. And as believers, I want to encourage us, let's cross over. Let's move over from that east side to the west side of the Jordan. They get attached to Egypt or the world. They get attached to their, their sin, their way of doing life. And sometimes, even if they're not overly attached, it's all they know. And it seems hard to break that. Sometimes it is. We need the Lord's help. Because I figured this out. Any progress I've made in any area of my life spiritually was all because of him. It was all because of him. I can't stand up and say, well, yeah, I did this, and I was wonderful at that, and I was incredible at this. I have to stand up for you and say, by the grace of God, it's the grace of God that enables us, empowers us to do what is right and to make forward momentum in God. So they won't cross over where the, the promised land is, so they fight the battles, but they don't enjoy the, the plunder, the spoils, the blessings of the Christian life. I want to encourage you to enjoy the blessings of the Christian life. So I ask a question that I think I know the answer to. Do you want to be happy and blessed? Do you want to be happy, enviably fortunate, spiritually prosperous, possessing the happiness produced by experiencing God's favor? And I know our answer is yes, of course we do. Well, then there's something we should do. And I always want to make this plain. We're not going to do anything to earn our salvation. Do you have that? There's nothing... There's nothing that I do that earns my salvation. There's nothing I do that keeps God happy for another day so he doesn't reject me. Are you with me? I think a lot of people live in that fear. Oh, I don't know if I did everything right today. Let me just let you rest assured that you did not do everything right today. You already haven't done everything right, and we're barely getting started in the day. So, well, well what am I going to do then? You're going to trust in the mercy and the grace of Jesus. You're not making an excuse to not do right. You're just saying, I get it. Apart from him, I can do nothing, but in him I can do all things. And, of course, our forward momentum is always to please God in everything we do. So, we need to cross over. What happens is that the more you experience God, the more you'll let go of Egypt. The more you experience God, the more he will outshine the world. The more you just yield yourself to God, the more joy, the more happiness, the more blessing that you will walk in. Also, not only is it good for you, please hear me, not only is it good for you, it's good for others who are watching you. There ain't nobody watching me. Oh, yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. They want to know how you're going to act how you're going to respond, how you're going to live. And they are not drawn to your duplicitous lifestyle. They're not drawn to your double standards. They're not drawn to sometimes this, sometimes that. And, in fact, neither are you. You're not drawn to that because, as I said, you're often miserable because you know too much, you believe it's true, and, but you just catch these little flints, these little glimmers of the pleasure of sin but you can't enjoy it because you know the goodness of God and so what ends up happening is you end up having these pleasurable moments of sin but what what ends up happening you end up in shame and guilt and remorse 
and regret. All those things, God doesn't want you to live in that. God, and you don't want to live in that. And so I'm going to tell you, just keep crossing over. Keep moving towards the promised land. Keep stepping in. Keep experiencing all the goodness of God. You don't like it either. You say, well, I just don't know which way to go. Well, don't forget, the psalmist said, and Jesus too, I made known to you the path of life. You know which way to go. And if you don't, somebody here will share it with you. Here's the way you go. This is the way. God wants to show you the way. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way which you should go. These are the words of God. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way which you should go. I will guide you with mine eye. But don't be like the mule. Now, let me say this. I'm talking to me as well as every person in here. You know, somebody says, well, if I had achieved your, your spiritual growth, well, you will never feel, if you, if you have any understanding of where you've grown, you will never feel like a spiritual giant in God's, to God. In your own eyes, you will know this. But for the grace of God, any sin is possible. I have to yield myself to God. Not an excuse to sin. Are you with me? This is the tightrope Paul was always teaching. He said, you are saved to the bone, man. You are saved to the uttermost. Oh, I am? They said, great. Then we can go live like the devil. Oh, time out. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? It's the tightrope we're always walking. And I want you to walk that tightrope. I want you not to say, I'm going to feel really comfortable sin then since, it, since I'm forgiven. No, I want you to feel really comfortable pursuing righteousness, pursuing God. So here's a pattern. What happens is we can't do anything to earn salvation. But let me tell you what we can do. We can do things that create an atmosphere or an environment for growth. We can do things that create an atmosphere and environment for spiritual progress. We can do things that create an atmosphere and environment for joy and for peace and for hope. In fact, young people, I want to tell you, if, if you got good parents, I'm not saying you may have horrible parents, but if you got good parents, I want to say this, you can do a lot to bring peace and joy in that home. Kids, young people. Parents, you can do a lot to create an atmosphere of peace and joy in your home. So we want to do the things that create an environment for peace and for hope and for joy and for happiness in our homes and in our life. So what I'm going to share with you is not a way to earn your salvation. I'm going to share with you a way to create an atmosphere for spiritual growth. Let me ask this about coming to church. What do you think happens? Let's say we fill the place up every Sunday, and just for this illustration, everybody that comes in the doors are all Jesus lovers, they're all Christians, okay? What do you think happens if 70% of the people come in, uh, stayed up watching TV till 3 in the morning, they hit snooze on their alarm five times till they finally rolled out of bed, they dashed, you know, to get to church. Uh, of course, you know what happens when you're sleepy and you're tired and everything, everybody gets grumpy. And so on the way to church, you and the family and the kids have all fought all the way, you know, you get there, you find out you got one black shoe and one brown shoe on because you couldn't see well in the dark, and you, you walk in, and you're, but, you know, we pull up in the driveway, you shake it off and say, okay, and then you go, praise the Lord, so happy to be here. And he ain't happy to be here. You know, it takes halfway through worship, or maybe you never get there, to where you really feel like, oh, okay, okay. Now, we're talking about a group of people who are Christians going to heaven. All that. What would happen if a group of Christians said, 
on Saturday night, hey, we're going to be in the house of the Lord tomorrow. And I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's make sure everybody gets to bed early. Let's make sure, hey, this, this is generally a ladies thing. Let's make sure, ladies, that I'm not looking through 40 garments on Sunday morning. I can find one maybe the night before or narrow it down to 12, okay, so I can move faster in the morning. We're going to get a good night's rest. We're going to wake up. We're not going to be bickering and fighting. We're going to leave for church at an orderly time. We're going to get there. And we have been praying in the morning. We had our minds set the night before we went to bed. We're coming to the house of the Lord, not anxious, not grumpy, not hurried, not fighting. We're prayed up. We're praised up. Let me ask the question, do you think the church service will be better with the second group than with the first group? Absolutely. And it's the same group of people. What happened? We created an atmosphere, an atmosphere for the service. You say, well, was God bigger that day? No, God wasn't bigger one day than the other. He's big. He's huge all the time. You were ready. I always am amazed, you know. I led a little worship thing for a group one time. They, they were, I shared this before, I'm a barely adequate guitar player. I can sing on key most of the time, and that's it. And I led some songs for this little group of people, and uh, they were so ready to worship God. I mean, I just hit a chord, and bam, they were just there. Guess what? They were prepped. They were ready. You know what they said afterwards? They said, oh, my goodness, you are anointed to lead worship. Now, I had enough sense to me that I knew that wasn't actually, and I don't, I'm not saying God didn't anoint that, but that wasn't the anointing on my life. I said, I remember this line, I said, you guys were so ready to worship, I could have beat pots and pans together. And you guys, oh, Lord, we worship you, we honor you. Why? Because their preparation, the atmosphere they created, the environment. You can create a environment for your life to enjoy the blessings of God and the favor of God, and the happiness of God, and bring it into your home, and to your workplace, and all school, everywhere. So here's some steps for being happy and blessed. First of all, commit your life to Jesus today. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this isn't just a self-help message. Everything, any progress I've ever made is all because of him. So the only environment I can create is to tell you how to tap him. So commit your life to Jesus today. Be born again. Say, well, I'm going to think about that for a while. Don't think about it for a while. Just do it. Well, yeah, but no, no, yeah, but. The Bible says this. The Bible says this is God speaking. Today is the day of salvation. Today. So we're here today. So is Monday the day? No, today is the day now. Now, if it was Monday, Monday would be the day. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Go for it right now. Second of all, this is powerful. Pray and ask God to help you want to do what is right. Now, that seems silly, but you and I have all come to a time where you say, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I want to do it. Is there anybody who would dare admit that? As a Christian who loves Jesus, there's been things in your life where you say, I know this is wrong, but I want to do it. Yeah, everybody here but me has gone through that at some point or another. Me, you, all of us, all of us have said, I know that's wrong, but I want to do it. So the prayer, what do we do with our prayer? We start out with this prayer, Lord God, help me to want to do what is right. And then once I want to do what's right, because have you ever done this? You wanted to do what was right, but you didn't do it. 
you failed, you were weak, you didn't come through. Okay, me, you, all of us have done that too. So what's the answer? Pray and ask God. Ask God to help you want to do what's right and to give you the power to do what's right. And I've got a good Bible verse for you. Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That's a good verse to remember and to pray. Lord, you're working in me, helping me to desire to do what's right, what pleases you, and you're giving me the power to do what pleases you. Okay. Third thing. Do what you know is right today. I share an example of where somebody told me a situation that was in their life after church. Uh, they were a pretty new believer. They hadn't been here long. They told me a situation. They said, what's the scripture say about it? And I said, the scripture says that what you're doing is wrong and that you shouldn't be doing it and you should be doing this. And I didn't beat them up. They didn't feel beat up. I just asked me a question. I told them the truth. A few weeks later, I talked to them. I said, what's going on with that situation? They said, I went and corrected it that day. That day. I went, oh my gosh, I wasn't used to people actually taking my advice on something. They, they did it that day, and the advice they had was scriptural, and they did it, and God blessed them for that. So you do what's right today. They say, yeah, but Tracy, I got a $600 credit card bill. I know I can take $100 a week from the coffers at work. They'll never miss it. They'll never know it, so I'm going to do what's right starting seven weeks from now. No, you want to start today. That's wrong. Start today. And the fourth thing sounds more mysterious, but we'll make it simple. Begin practicing the presence of God as a lifestyle. Begin practicing the presence of God as a lifestyle. Let me define that. Women, you're generally better at this than men are. Uh, men tend to compartmentalize life. Okay, you've got this compartment, this compartment, this compartment, this compartment. Okay, so, but heads up, men. Your wives, everything's a cauldron of soup. Okay, everything you do, it's an ingredient that goes in there and gets stirred around. Okay, so that's fine if you use it to your advantage. You put good things in the cauldron. Okay, you got up in the morning and you looked at your spouse, you said, Wow, it looks like you're putting on some weight. Oh, well, that got poured into the cauldron. Okay, <laughs> stirred around in there. You came home for supper. And maybe she had made you supper, and you said, wow, that's not your finer work, honey. That was not very good at all. Okay, that got poured in there. Okay. Later that night, you feel a little romantic. Ah, uh, I got too much stuff stirring around here in the cauldron, okay? <laughs> Guys, they have compartmentalized life. That's why men who are Christians, seriously, and this is wrong, they come to church on Sunday morning, and they go to work on Monday, and they cuss out a coworker, And they're hateful and mean. And if challenged with it, they'll think, this is Monday, this ain't Sunday. I did my church thing yesterday. Now, see, we're going to practice the presence of God 24-7. It's all, it's all life. Colossians 3 says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, our life, not a part of our life, not a portion of our life, he is our life. And so we start practicing the presence of God. And what I mean by that, just to take it so it's not so mystical, is we start realizing, hold it, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says, I'm a very present help in time of need. God says, I am always near. 
So he's always with me. In fact, he lives in me, so everywhere I go, he goes. So now think about this. You, I'll just stick with the example I had. You're saying, I got to take $100 from the work coffers to meet my bill this week. And so you sit down to figure out how to scam that $100. Maybe you're doing it online here. And so think about Jesus being with you. Would you think about saying, hey, Jesus, can you help me out with this? I've got to figure out how to, uh, you know, get $100 uh, illegally and criminally from my boss in order to pay my credit card bill. Can you help me with this? You're, you're not going to, you can't do it, can you? It's like, wow, Jesus is here, so I'm going to practice the presence of God. You get cut off in traffic. And if you tend to be a road rager, you get cut off in traffic, and, and then you go, Jesus is sitting here with me. And so since you realize Jesus is sitting there, you say, Father, just bless them, bless them, love them, love them. Well, that wasn't what you were going to say until you realized Jesus was with you. So you start practicing the presence of God. And so you start looking at your life and saying, what pleases him? If, if I'm practicing living in his presence, then I want to do what pleases him because he really is here. He really is with me. He really is watching Every sinful thing I do, he's involved in it. He's there. Not that he's part of it, but he's with me. And so that's a very powerful thing to start practicing the presence of God. We had a meeting one time many years ago, and it's just a small group of people who were dealing with a a problem that needed to be resolved in the church. And so uh, I remember I was sitting here, and there's a bunch of people sitting around the table, and I set up a chair there, and I said, this is the chair for Jesus. Jesus is in this meeting. The guy who was sitting right here, by the way, it was, it was a friendly meeting, but I wanted to know we're dealing with a hard topic, and I want us to be careful that we're, we're being believers. The person who was sitting right here looked over at that chair and actually stopped and said, that's powerful, because he started to realize as I start to speak, Jesus is sitting there, and that's the way you do life. It would help a lot in life we'd realize Jesus is sitting there, and we dealt with the issue, and again, it wasn't an ugly thing, and and one of the reasons it wasn't ugly was because Jesus was sitting there, and we were all aware of it. So, begin practicing the presence of God as a lifestyle. Now, I want us to pray.